Scripture today is John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stopping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned to him and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Ashley. Uh, boys and girls, you can head out to Story Keepers or to Nursery. As the kids are heading out, let's, uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this uh, account of Jesus' uh, first uh, encounter with, with uh, someone after his resurrection. We pray that it would uh, teach us, encourage us, something that may be a f- familiar to many of us as we've read this before, for some of us perhaps new, but we come confidently that you will speak into all of our lives by the power of your spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's often been observed that there is something significant about the final words of men and women when they come face to face with death, as those words often reveal something of the character or personality of the about-to-be-deceased. Thomas Hobbes, the brilliant English skeptic of the 17th century who corrupted the faith of some of England's uh, finest men, said this, if I had the whole world, I would give it to live one more day. I shall be glad to find a hole to creep out of the world at. I'm about to take a leap in the dark. 
John Sedgwick was a general in the Union Army in the Civil War at uh, the Civil War skirmish of Spotsylvania Courthouse. Sedgwick was deploying his men to face the enemy, said to his men who were ducking from the fire of a Confederate sniper, they couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. Famous last words indeed. Or these uh, famous last words from none other than Oscar Wilde, the Irish writer, one of my favorite quotes. He said, this wallpaper is appalling. One of us will have to go. <laughs> it's often, often struck me that, uh, and indeed others, are somewhat misleading that the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross have traditionally been called his last words. And the unintended implication of that is that Jesus didn't actually rise again. He didn't say anything more. But as we were celebrating just three weeks ago, and indeed as we celebrate every Sunday, Jesus did rise, and indeed he did have more to say before he returned to heaven 40 days after rising to life. So what we're doing in this season of Eastertide, that is these weeks following Easter Sunday, is looking at what we're calling the real last words of Jesus before ascending back to heaven. Jeremy started us off in this series a couple of weeks ago as, uh, as we looked at a word to the doubting as uh, Jesus en encountered Thomas a week after his resurrection. Over the coming weeks, we're going to be thinking about Jesus's words to the fearful, to the skeptical, to the fallen, to everyone. In other words, here are Jesus's last words on earth to you and to me. This morning, we're going to think in particular about these words spoken by Jesus uh, to the very first person he encountered after he rose from the dead, namely Mary Magdalene, a woman who was seeking, a woman who will be asked, who is it that you're looking for? And that's the question I want each of us to ask ourselves this morning. Who is it this morning that you're looking for? We're going to think about this passage in three parts this morning. First of all, a background check. Secondly, dead people don't rise. And thirdly, the difference it makes. Who is it that you're looking for? If we wind the clock back a bit from that first Easter Sunday morning, uh, we know from Luke chapter 8 that Mary Magdalene had been part of Jesus' ministry team. This team had traveled with Jesus and the disciples and out of their own resources had met the practical needs of the team. Luke also tells us that Jesus had delivered Mary Magdalene from seven demons. It's worth pointing out that Magdalene wasn't her name per se. It indicated where she was from. Just as calling Jesus the Nazarene indicated that he was from Nazareth, so calling this Mary Magdalene pointed out that she was from the region of Magdala. Magdala was a resort city on the western shore of Galilee. It was a city of great luxury and great corruption and was notorious for being morally loose and free. It was where people went to walk on the wild side. And that's where Mary was from. It's a long and early tradition in the Western church that Mary Magdalene was, in fact, a prostitute. That's not mentioned in the Bible, so we can only take it as tradition. But what we can surmise from the Gospels is that Mary Magdalene came from a broken background. Her life had been a wreck, and her life had been put back together again by Jesus. And because of that, Mary had a great love for Jesus, the man who had rescued her from horror and from hell. 
It was a love for a man also whom she had watched be mercilessly beaten and crucified. As you bring together the different gospel accounts of that first Good Friday, you realize that Mary had been among the women that had watched everything that had happened to Jesus. She had seen him bloodied and beaten. She'd seen him brought to this hill outside the city. She'd watched the soldiers pound the nails into his hands and his feet. She'd heard him cry out, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Mary Magdalene had been there beside Jesus' own mother, Mary, and the disciple John, as Jesus said to them, Dear woman, here is your son, and to John, here is your mother. She was there as Jesus breathed his last breath. After Joseph of Arimathea had taken Jesus' body down and, and together with Nicodemus wrapped it in cloth with the 75 pounds of spices, Mary Magdalene and the other women had followed Joseph. They'd seen the tomb and then they'd sat opposite the tomb as they watched the men place Jesus' body in the tomb and roll the large stone across the entrance. In other words, Mary Magdalene was there to the very bitter end. So that you can only imagine the emotional abyss that she was in. Only at the end of that day does she go home and prepare the spices and perfumes for Jesus' body, which he would return with to the tomb on the Sunday, because as Luke tells us, the women rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. Well, here's how John then picks up the story from verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week... Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Mary Magdalene, together with the other women, are the first to come to this garden, to the tomb. But it's clear that for Mary Magdalene, her journey is with the undoubted expectation that she'll find a body to take care of in death. She'd been there on Friday through her tears. She'd seen the whole process. So no sooner had she seen the stone moved away that she concludes that someone has taken the body. And immediately she rushes back to tell Peter and John, the disciples, what she's found. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. I just want you to feel the weight of that statement for a moment, because here was a woman who, with many others, had heard Jesus say over and over and over again that he would die and he would rise again. Jesus had spoken so much about his resurrection that even his enemies knew about it. That's why there were guards posted at the tomb to make sure that Jesus' followers couldn't come and steal the body and then claim that he had been raised. But she was also a woman of a culture that had no place for resurrection in its worldview. As far as people were concerned, and this brings us to our second point, dead people don't rise. Dead people don't come back to life. Well, I was visiting my parents a couple of weeks ago in Alaska. I, I watched a new four-part drama uh, from the UK about the true story of John and Anne Darwin. It was called The Thief, His Wife, and the Canoe. March 2002, 
John Darwin went out in his canoe off the northeast coast of England on County Durham. When he missed his shift at work and didn't return home, the alarm was raised and there was a huge search operation. He was a missing person, presumed dead. What the police didn't know was that John had actually faked his own death with the help of his wife so that they could claim the life insurance money. After the accident, the couple actually continued to live in their home with John living in a next-door annex. They then tried to move to Panama with their stolen cash, and it was there that things started to unravel. So that five years later in 2007, for reasons that really were unclear, John Darwin decided to fly back to the UK. He walks into a police station, and, and his first words were, I think I'm a missing person. When he tells the police officer his name, the officer clearly recognizes the name because this had been all over the news for many years. But it's obvious that the officer at that point was not thinking, well, jolly, jolly gee, John Darwin was dead and now he's alive. He immediately suspects that something else is going on, probably something fishy, and he was right. Because dead people don't rise. Dead people don't come back to life. And here in John 20, at Jesus' tomb, so believed Mary. So that her first reaction when she gets to the garden and the tomb is empty is not, he's done it, but they took it. Simon Peter and John have a foot race to the tomb to see what Mary was talking about. Just as an aside, I think this is absolutely hilarious. John here doesn't just mention once, but twice, that he got to the tomb before Peter did. <laughs> right, a little bit of rivalry there, you think? Hang on, so funny. Mary, Mary must have then followed them back, because here's what happens after the two men then leave again, having themselves seen the empty tomb, verses 10 to 13. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? So after John and Simon Peter leave, Mary stays behind, the, the tears just flooding her eyes. I can imagine this Irish elegy, a poem of grief fitting well Mary's state of mind at the tomb. My love and my fortune, tis an evil portion to lay for a giant, a shroud and a coffin. My rider of the bright eyes, what happened to you yesterday? I thought you in my heart a man the world could not slay. In the midst of her grief, Mary bends down to look into the tomb, and she sees two angels who ask her why she's crying. Still her mindset is death has executed her Lord, the body is gone, so she basically says the same thing to the two angels as she'd said to Simon, Peter, and John. They've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. Cue Jesus. Mary Magdalene obviously doesn't know it's Jesus, but here's what happens next. Verses 14 to 15, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. So Jesus doesn't immediately reveal his identity to Mary. You know, doesn't run up to her and go, It's me, it's me. Does, doesn't do that. Instead, he asks her two questions, neither of which she really answers. She's still in shock. She's still in grief. She's confused. 
Mary doesn't mention who she's talking about. She just keeps referring to him because he is all that she can think about. But look at Jesus' second question again. Who is it that you're seeking? Who are you looking for? Because if Mary Magdalene had answered that question honestly, here's what her, her answer would surely have been. I'm looking for a corpse. I'm looking for the dead Jesus. The empty tomb, which for us 2,000 years on is such a symbol of our hope, was for her an absolute horror. Mary was still thinking in terms of a dead body when Jesus confronts her with his living presence. She was searching for a dead Jesus and she encounters the living Jesus because there isn't a dead Jesus, because Jesus is alive. He's alive because this dead man has risen. Which brings us then thirdly to the question of, well, what difference does all of this make in 2022 to us that Jesus has risen from the dead? Let me start to apply this first of all for anyone here who might be skeptical that Jesus actually is alive today. Anyone here who might lean towards believing that Jesus is actually dead and buried at some undisclosed location in other words, what if you're here today and you're listening to this and you're thinking to yourself, I mean, is, isn't it possible that all this is just made up? That it's a myth created by people years later to try to make people believe that Jesus came back from the dead when he didn't actually? It's an important question to ask. Let, let, me, let me suggest to you why the evidence argues against that viewpoint. In his book, uh, The Reason for God, Tim Keller presents three reasons why we're on very solid ground to believe in the historical reliability of what we read in the Gospels. We've looked at these reasons in years past. I just want to focus on one of them this morning because one of those reasons really hones in on this passage as an example of how the content of the Gospels was at points counterproductive to the agenda of the early Christians. The content of the Gospels was counterproductive to the agenda of the Christians. Because one argument often made against believing the Gospels is this. People would say, well, you can't trust the Gospel accounts of Jesus' life and his death and his, his resurrection because they were written by Christians. That is, they're written by people who believed in Jesus. They, therefore, had an agenda to get other people in the first century to believe in Christianity as well. And Tim Keller makes the argument that somewhat paradoxically, we can trust the reliability precisely because these Christians did have an agenda of wanting people to believe. The fact is that if your agenda was to promote belief in Jesus through a make-believe story, you would never have written the story the way it's written. It would have been too counterproductive to your goal. Case in point... John chapter 20. Did you know that in Jesus' day, the evidence of a woman was considered inadmissible in a court of law simply because it was the evidence of a woman? I'm not endorsing that view. I'm not praising it. I'm just telling you that's how it was back then. But if you were making up a story about Jesus, about a man called Jesus, and you wanted people to believe that he'd come back from the dead to life... Who might be some of the last people you'd want as your first and primary witness? It would be women. 
And yet, who's the first on the scene here, according to John? It's a woman. I think the only historically plausible reason that we're told a woman was first on the scene is because it had to have happened that way. This is the eyewitness account of how things transpired. The content of the story of Jesus is at times so counterproductive to the agenda of the Christians that it seems almost implausible that the details of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection were actually made up. Mary Magdalene was looking for a dead Jesus, and she actually was the first one to encounter the living Jesus. But then there are others of us here, probably most of us, who don't need to be convinced intellectually that Jesus is not dead but alive. We believe that. The trouble is that to look at our lives sometimes, you'd never actually know it. We live at times as if Jesus was still in that tomb when Mary arrived, and he's still there. So the, the question each of us is, is worth each of us asking is, could that be said of us? Does your life suggest to others that Jesus actually is dead and gone rather than alive and present? Let me suggest to you from this passage three differences you and I should see in our lives on the basis that Jesus is the alive Jesus and not the dead Jesus. And the first way is seen in what, Mary, what Jesus says next to Mary, verses 15 to 16. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. It was at the utterance of that one word, her name, that Mary recognized Jesus. And she realized she'd been looking for the wrong thing. She'd been looking for a dead Jesus, but there wasn't a dead Jesus. Jesus was alive. This Jesus who would reveal himself not by some great edict, not by making some powerful declaration, but by simply calling her by her name, renewing a relationship that she thought now was also dead, but which was alive. Because you see, the alive Jesus is the relational Jesus. Jesus rose again to be in a relationship with you. Not just us as a church body, as a community, as a collect collection of people, but you as an individual. At times we rightly need to be reminded that so much of the, of the Bible is written to a community, addressing people in the plural, that, so that when we read the word you in the, in the Bible, more often than not it's y'all if you're from the south, it's yous or usins if you're from Northern Ireland. That's a helpful corrective for us as we eat, drink, and breathe the, the, the rampant individualism of our culture. But at the same time, Jesus does long to relate to each of us individually. He died and rose again for you as a person. And so that just as he does with Mary here, he knows you by name as well. Listen to these words from Jesus earlier in John's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 2 to 3. He says, He who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. I wonder if you've ever done that. I wonder if you've ever imagined in your head, in your heart, hearing Jesus say your name. Your name. And then telling you, that he loves you, and that he died for you, and he rose for you. 
that as you and I trust our lives with him, he enters into a relationship where he loves and is loved back, where he comforts and he challenges, where he strengthens and he corrects, because the alive Jesus is the relational Jesus. Secondly, the alive Jesus is the Savior Jesus. When Jesus says, Mary, here's Mary's response, verse 16, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Well, the irony here is that this, here's this risen man standing in front of her, mistakenly identified as the gardener, and now addressed as the teacher, who by definition, because he's standing there having risen from the dead, has to be much, much more than that. In her surprise, Mary's addressed him with a language that she'd probably used prior to his death, but she would come to see that the alive Jesus is much more than the teacher Jesus. He's the savior Jesus. You see, if, if Mary had got what she was wishing for that morning, a dead body in a tomb, a body ready for more anointing, then a teacher was all that Jesus would have been. Someone who taught inspiring truths, someone who perhaps set a, a, some kind of example, but that would have been it. We would have put him up alongside every other so-called religious teacher and leader in human history. Muhammad, Siddhartha Gautama, Gandhi, Mother Teresa. But that's not the primary reason Jesus came. He came to be the Savior. He came to rescue you and me from the penalty that we deserve for our rebellion against God, for our ugly pride and selfishness, for our sin. The reason he went to that cross on which Mary had seen him die was to take your place and my place, to be our substitute taking God's punishment that we deserve so that we don't have to take it. And how do we know that he was successful in that mission of paying for our sin completely by his resurrection from the dead? The risen Jesus shows us that if you trust your life with him, then all your sin, all your sin is paid for. It's all forgiven. All the foul-ups, all the messes, all the harsh words, even the worst things that you've done that come back to haunt your mind at times, all the ignoring of the, of the creator, it's all forgiven, it's all paid for. But you see, if you and I insist on wallowing in our own guilt and not letting go of it, if we refuse to let go of our past, if we excuse our current behavior because, well, that's the way I, I've always been, well, that's acting like Jesus is the dead Jesus, not the alive Jesus. Because the alive Jesus is the Savior Jesus. And then lastly, the alive Jesus is the sending Jesus. Look at verses 17 to 18. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So Jesus tells Mary, there's no need to cling on to me. I'm going to be around here for a little while, but go and tell the others what's happened. My father is now your father. My God is now your God. That's not Jesus somehow suggesting that he himself was not God, but he's announcing the good news that, that the family of God just got a lot bigger. And just as when any of our families get bigger with the news of new members, new births, Jesus tells Mary to go and tell others this good news. So that for this one brief shining moment, just get this, for this one brief shining moment, Mary Magdalene 
was the entire church because she was the only person, the only missionary, the only evangelist who knew the truth. A woman, perhaps a reformed prostitute, a mental patient, not a pillar of this community, a lay person, not a minister, Jesus reveals himself to her first. That's part of the beauty of the gospel. That Jesus died to pay for our sins. His resurrection proved that he defeated sin and death. But all of that comes to us only by grace. It's all by grace. Mary's on the outside of every category of inside-outside paradigm that the world has. But God's criterion for salvation and eternal life is not the good are in and the bad are out, as the world wants to think. His criterion is the humble are in and the proud are out. Because you can't earn this. You can't buy this. You have to just open your hands and receive it as a gift. So that Jesus reveals himself to the Mary Magdalene's of the world, the humble, not the proud. And then he says, go and tell others. Go and tell others. Let's invite other people into the family. Because the alive Jesus is the sending Jesus. This passage is actually one of my favorite passages to preach at funerals. Indeed, it's the the passage I spoke on uh, just over a week ago at Mary Parsons' service. And if I'm honest, that's not just because of the good news of resurrection life that's packed into this chapter, but it's also because of the quote that's in your bulletin this morning by the 17th century English poet George Herbert that reflects beautifully, I think, on this passage. Herbert wrote, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel makes him just a gardener. Isn't that great? This is the only place in the gospels Jesus is ever mistaken to be a gardener. But you see, it's actually not completely off track, is it? Because through the risen Lord Jesus Christ, death is now just a gardener. And what did George Herbert mean by that? He meant that through faith in Jesus, your death plants you and waters you and prunes you into the person that God intended you to be in his presence forever. That he brings to completion the work that he begun, has begun in every believer Philippians 1, 6, as Jeremy was preaching on last week. He brings that work to completion, and he does that by ushering us at death into his presence, where we blossom within a world beyond our wildest dreams, our wildest imaginations, where sin and hurt and pain and sickness and death are finally dealt with, and where we never stop growing. Never. That's the promise of the resurrection. That's what we've been designed for, created for, built for. That's why Jesus died and rose again. That's why the best decision that you and I can ever make in this life is to bank our lives on what Jesus did for us in his life. Death used to be an executioner, but the gospel of Jesus Christ has made him just a gardener. Jesus says to Mary, who is it that you're looking for? And he says to each of us, who is it that you're looking for? He says, I'm not dead, I'm alive. So seek, seek the living Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, what a beautiful encounter John tells us about here. 
and so much to give to us, to encourage us and strengthen us and to live by, that you indeed, Jesus, are the Savior, the living Savior. You, Jesus, are the one who relates to us even now, calling us by name, and you're the one who sends us out to share this good news so that others can come into the family. Help us to focus on those points that we've thought about that are particularly needed in our own lives, things that are of particular encouragement, things that might challenge us and help us to reshape our lives so that they might be more pleasing to you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.